So for those of you who don't know, there's a big basketball game today. That's the woot woot. Not sure if you care who wins, but I was, uh, I know for a fact that the guy in the sound booth graduated from a school in Ann Arbor and playing the Michigan State fight song must have given him some vibrate. It had to be hard for him. But anyway, uh, I don't care who wins, but let's hope it's Michigan. Um, I don't care. I really don't. Um, so... Some of you received an email from me this week uh, asking for you to help me. Uh, it wasn't me sending the email. And some of you received an email later saying Doug didn't send an email. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure I gave voice to this. If you got an e email from me and you replied, then they ask you to uh, buy a gift card for a cancer patient. Uh, it's all a scam. I don't know how that happens. It's way beyond my pay grade to understand. But it didn't actually come from me. If you look at the email, it's a different email. Um, in this particular instance, I wasn't asking for money. Um, but if you did respond uh, to the email, uh, I would just highly encourage you uh, just to make sure that no, you haven't compromised your own banking information. Uh, we don't know who it is, obviously. Um, but anyway, it wasn't for me, and so some of you are already nervous. I'm sorry uh, that that happened. Hey, we are in the uh, Lenten season, just a season of time where we slow down a little bit, uh, maybe give some things up, kind of prepare our hearts for uh, the upcoming Easter season. And I uh, just want to remind you that the chapel is open from 6.30 to 8.30 every morning. It's just a time for people to come for a quiet reflection, prayer, do your devotions, just uh, whatever you want to do. Uh, if you desire to have specific prayer for you, you just need to kind of give Meg or I kind of a little nod and we'll meet you out side of the cafe or the uh, chapel, and we'd be happy to pray with you if that's something you desire. But it's uh, just a wonderful time. Some people are there for 10 minutes. Some people are there for the full two hours, whatever works for you. We've got people that are stopping on their way to work, and we got people that are stopping on their way home from work if they happen to work in uh, the midnight shift. But either way, it's there for you as just a way of serving you. I kind of challenged you to maybe give something up for this season, a way of fasting. One of the things that I'm doing and I invited you to do with me was to give up social media. If you haven't done that and you still feel the nudge, uh, it's not too late to jump in. But I wanted to share with you an email I got this week uh, because it just made me smile. So a woman wrote to me and she said, hello, pastor. I just wanted to let you know I'm getting in trouble at home for giving up social media for Lent. My online spending habits have tripled. And then she wrote, just kidding, sort of. Um, I responded to her and said, ha, you're supposed to go to Jesus to fill the void, not Amazon. <laughs> Laugh out loud. And to which she wrote back, oops. But anyway, I got a kick out of it. Uh, just an invitation to be with us as we journey through this. Uh, one of the things that I love that Meg suggested in the book, uh, the link guide, is that uh, maybe what you're feeling compelled to is not giving something up, but giving something. Maybe God is calling you to a season of radical generosity, of just giving something to somebody every day. Maybe God is just calling you to write a word of encouragement, a letter to somebody every day. What I just want you to hear is it's not too late to jump in and to participate in really just quieting our spirits and getting ready for the Lenten season. All right, grab your Bibles, turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. John, chapter 3, we're going to read verses 16 through 21 in a few minutes. We're in week four of a church-wide study uh, that we've called the Church Without Curtains. And uh, I'm going to kind of summarize where we've been so far in each of the weeks, but I kind of want to give you a little bit of, of context for where this whole series came from. It was about five years ago, a little more than five years ago, when I was preaching right here on this stage, and I felt very clearly that God said to me, I want this to be a church without curtains. 
And at that time, we had actually put up curtains, some of you might remember, but we had black curtains that hung in the sanctuary with the very intent of drawing people down closer. It was a way of sort of shrinking the room. So in excitement, I thought what God was saying is, I want to fill every seat. I want it to be packed. I want you to have to take those curtains down so that the room is full. And while I believe that's true, God does want to fill this place because he wants more and more people to hear the good news of Jesus, right? So we know that God wants to fill the place, and we should be playing a part in doing that. As we sunk into it, as I sunk into it, it became very clear that God wasn't talking about filling the room. He was talking about a different way of us uh, relating to one another. When When he said a church without curtains, what he really was saying is, I want this to be a place where people can be honest with me and honest with one another, where there's no hiding, there's no putting up curtains. And so that's thrown into us writing this uh, study, Meg and I, called The Church Without Curtains. And and so we're into this uh, eight-week experience. We're in week four of A Church Without Curtains. Many of you are meeting in small groups to work through your workbook. If you are using your workbook today, we're on page 55. That's where you'd take your sermon notes. Um, But we just want to invite you. If you still haven't gotten in a group, you can just go to the uh, group finder on the C group finder on our website, and you can still get plugged into a group. But let me just kind of summarize where we've been, and then we'll look at this information that we have for today. Week one, we discovered that it was through the sacrifice of Jesus, through his, his death on the cross, that, that God has given us total access to him. There is this moment on the cross where Jesus cries out and he gives up his spirit, and it says that the, 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 the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Remember the curtain we talked about it that week? was 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, thicker than a man's hand. There was a, uh, old documents that say that if you'd put a team of horses on each side of the curtains, they would have been... Uh, incapable of tearing this incredible uh, separation in half, but yet God tore it in half from top to bottom when, when Jesus gave up his spirit, right? And so the idea there was behind that curtain was the presence of God, and the, the people would go into the temple, and they would be reminded that their sins had separated them from the presence of God. That's where the presence of God reside. But in that moment, something in the world, the cosmic world changed, and suddenly we have access to God in a, in a new way, in a powerful way. The curtain is down, and we can actually be in the holy of holies. So Hebrews 10, you don't need to look there. It's going to come up on the screen. We're going to get to John in a minute. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. He's using the temple uh, imagery. We have confidence to enter the most holy holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. Through the curtain. Look at those last six words. Through the curtain that is his body. Jesus made a way for us to have total access to God. We are able to stand in the presence of the living God. Whether we believe it whether we uh, live it out in our own lives, it's a theological truth. So week one, we have total access to God. Week two, we looked at Philippians, and if you remember, I I brought a a stool up, and I talked about the three legs of the stool and how they really represent these three necessary elements for us to have a a growing and, and solid faith, and the three elements were what? They were community, honesty, and humility. All three of those work together to give you a solid foundation of a growing faith, and that if any one of those are missing, you're going to struggle in your walk with God. But the, the takeaway was, from week two, you cannot follow Jesus in isolation. You cannot successfully walk out your faith in isolation. But what we saw last week is that our human nature is to isolate. 
that we follow in the footsteps of, of our ancestor Adam and we hide. We put up our own curtains, even though the curtain has been torn, we put up our own curtains, we hide from God and we hide from one another. We have established in that first week that, that God is real, Satan is real, that Satan is calling us or, or pushing us towards isolation and God is coming and he's calling us out of, of isolation and he's pursuing us. Right? We all have this propensity to hide because of our sin, and we need to recognize that and be willing to be called out. So in the week three, really, if there was a thread that ran through the whole thing, is that God is calling you. Not just calling us generically, but he's calling you by name. He sees you, and he's calling you out of hiding. Okay? So this week, we're going to look at the third chapter of John, and we're going to see that God has gone to extreme lengths to call us out of hiding. Not just with words, but with action. He has called us and he has done all of the work to reconcile us to himself. This is a, a power, this powerful description in John of what we have in the person of Jesus. And it's another opportunity for us to look at a very familiar passage in a new way. Last week, we looked at the story of Adam and Eve and the snake in the garden, and I challenged you to, to, to look at it as if you were seeing it for the first time. Don't, don't, don't tell yourself, oh, I know this story. And the same is true with the passage that we're about to read. John 3, 16 through 21. Jesus is speaking, and he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because of their, their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. So make sure you keep your Bibles open to John chapter 3 because we're going to look at a few other verses within that chapter. But let me just pray for us as we get into this. Lord, I pray that you would open up our minds, our hearts to this verse that is so familiar to so many of us. I pray that we would hear something new from your spirit. Pray that we would uh, have seeds planted in our hearts, that our hearts would be good soil, that those seeds would, would make roots and that they would grow and they would bear fruit a hundredfold. Help us to leave different than we came because we've interacted with the living God. Thank you that your spirit is already in this place. You're already speaking to us, moving through us. In Jesus' name, amen. I would wager to bet that John 3.16 is the most memorized verse in the scriptures. Now, it may be Jesus wept because we all learned that as a kid so that if anybody ever asked, do you know any Bible verse, we could say, yeah, I know that one, it's Jesus wept. But apart from that, John 3, 16, right? We've, most of us probably at some way or another could have fumbled our way through this verse. As a matter of fact, we see it in uh, sporting events. If you guys remember this guy, I don't know the story behind this guy, but for decades, it seemed like he was in every end zone of every football game, especially any major football game. He must have had the greatest Ticket sales. I mean, that guy got to come to some major, even, even at baseball games, you'd see him at the World Series. He'd always find a way to be in a seat where the camera was going to be on. He's wearing this uh, rainbow wig all the time, and he had his John 3.16. Sometimes he was holding a sign that said John 3.16. He became so famous that he actually made it onto The Simpsons. 
Isn't that crazy? Yep. So, I mean, everybody kind of knows the John 3.16 guy. Or how about Tim Tebow? You guys remember Tim when he was in his heyday of playing football and he put John 3.16 under his eyes, just a way of, of uh, uh, getting his testimony out there, a very powerful testimony. But, but here's this passage, right? It's very familiar. But the question is, is it known? We may know the passage, but is it really known? Do we really get the full power and meaning of the passage? I wonder how many of us have ever even looked at the context of John 3.16. What's Jesus actually saying when he says John 3.16? And, and what's the invitation that he's offering to all of us? Right, it's a, a well-known verse, but it's actually part of a conversation that Jesus is having with this guy, and, and he, he's talking to Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, when you hear me say Pharisee, pretty good odds you automatically put Nicodemus in the camp of the bad guys, because that's just what we do. Here, Pharisees, Sadducees, religious leaders, we just assume they were all bad hombres, right? I probably shouldn't have said that because that has bad connotations. Sorry. They were all bad people, right? That's, that's just an assumption we make. We lump them into that. But there were Pharisees and Sadducees that were actually trying to figure out who Jesus was. They were feeling the nudge of the spirit. They were feeling that something is different and they were trying to navigate that. They weren't all bad guys. That's what I want you to hear. They weren't all bad guys. And so here's this guy named Nicodemus. And when we read this story, because we lump him into this group of bad guys, we sometimes read things into the story that aren't actually there. But this is a, this is a guy who's struggling with it. And one of the things we know is that some of the religious leaders actually early on in the church became followers of Jesus. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he comes at night. And so we can assume that he came at night because he was trying to keep it a secret, but that's probably a bad assumption. More likely, he came in the evening because he wanted a private audience. He wanted to have a private conversation, to do it during the day. The crowds would have been there, all the things going on. He's probably trying to get a time when he could sit with Jesus and just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. And the appearances, that's exactly what happens. He has a private conversation with Jesus. And he's curious, he's confused, he's conflicted. And he can see Jesus is doing great things. He even says to Jesus, listen to this, he says, we know that you come from God. Those are pretty powerful words, right? Think about a Pharisee saying, we know that you come from God because no one could do all of this if God were not with them. So what he's saying is, I can tell that you're from God, but, but it's not all making sense, right? What you're doing and how you're doing it, I, I can't put all the pieces together. You're not behaving the way that I thought you would behave, now, there's just a, a, a bit of a chance for us to kind of take a little side note here. This is kind of the sermon within the sermon. But Nicodemus models something for us that, that serves as a warning to all of us. The minute you decide how God is going to work, or you decide this is how God looks, or this is how God behaves, when God doesn't look or behave that way, you are at risk of missing God when he's standing right in front of you. So when you paint God into a box and then God responds this way, you might say, well, that's not God because I think God's going to do it like this. Really, that's the story of the Gospels. All of these people had studied the scriptures. They had looked at the prophecies. They believed that Jesus was going to come. Well, they believed the Messiah was going to come, that he was going to do a particular thing in a particular way. He was going to be a political leader. He was going to overthrow the oppressive government, whichever government that was at the time, in this case, the Roman. He was going to sit on David's throne. They never expected a humble servant leader. 
They expected a powerful warrior, and he is, but they missed it because they had Jesus, they had the Messiah in a box, and he didn't look like that. So the warning is that we need to be careful too. We need to be careful not to say, this is what God is going to do in my life, and when he doesn't do it, we reject or we miss God at work. So that's what's going on. Nicodemus is saying, you are not behaving the way we would think the Messiah or someone who comes from God behaves. And he says, can you explain this to me? Why am I missing it? What's going on? I can tell you're from God, but none of this makes sense. And so Jesus says to him in verse three, if you look at it, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. He's asking him, remember what Jesus said over and over, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Matter of fact, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God more than any other subject. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. But you can't see the kingdom of God that's at hand because you are lacking spiritual vision. Right? You are looking at everything from a fleshly, worldly, humanly perspective. You don't have spiritual eyes. And he says these words, born again, which carry all kinds of baggage with us. If you've been in the church very long, that's just a term we use for whether or not someone's crossed the line of salvation. Are you born again? Have you said yes to Jesus? Which is a great question. It's a good question. But, but it limits what we're trying to understand about this passage. Nicodemus. Jesus says, you're, you're missing the movement of the Spirit all around you because you don't have spiritual eyes. You've not been born of the Spirit. He's saying you need a new way to think. You need a, a new way to relate. You need a new way of, of, of allowing to yourself to become a, a different person. So to be born again in this context means to be made spiritually aware. It means to be made new. So Nicodemus responds in verse 4, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. Nicodemus never thought that that's what Jesus was saying. He comes from a rich tradition of, of ancient world teaching where metaphors would have been very common. He would have known that Jesus was using a metaphor. He would have known physically it's impossible to go back in your mother's womb and be born again. So he is playing along, if you will, with the metaphor. So he is actually asking the question, okay, but is it even possible? Can a person really change? Can, can a person really learn what you're saying? And is it really capable for me to experience rebirth, right? He, he knows that Jesus is talking about change, and he's saying, yeah, but can you teach an old dog like me new tricks? Because I think I am who I am. And we all fall into that trap. I am who I am. I, it's too late for me. I've been down the road too far, and I just am what I am. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You got to understand this. So Nicodemus says, can a person really change? And Jesus responds, change is not only possible, it's my purpose. It's why I've come. And so then he says in verse five and six, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and spirit because flesh gives birth to flesh and the spirit gives birth to spirit. When you read in the scriptures, very truly I say to you, and it's a quote from, from Jesus, that it, you should just picture Jesus like taking your, your head in his hands and saying, listen, listen, this is super important, right? That's what he's saying. It's just like he has Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, just, just listen to me really carefully because this is so important for your entire life. Listen, no one can enter the kingdom of God. No one can understand the kingdom of God. No one really can see what God is up to unless they're born of flesh and born of spirit. 
born of water and born of spirit. Now, there's lots of uh, theologians out there that think that Jesus was talking about baptism, but he's not. He's just talking about you must be physically born and you must be spiritually born. So we all know that there's a, an element of water in physical birth. What's the first thing that happens when a woman gets ready to deliver? Her water breaks. There's lots of water involved in it. And so, so he's actually saying women are going to give birth. When you were conceived, God breathed life into you. That's why we believe in the sanctity of life. That's why we fight for the unborn. So your life was formed, and, you, and, and God breathed life into you. But... If you really want to see God at work in your life, you must also be born of spirit. Something else has to happen. You can be physically born, and then you need to have spiritual birth. Jesus answers the question. He says, yeah, old men can change. You can teach an old dog new tricks, and you, Nicodemus, can be made new. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, you don't have to turn there, but Ezekiel 36, 25 is a prophecy about what's going to happen when the Messiah, who happens to be Jesus, comes. And it says this, he says, when this all happens, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone. Heart of stone just represents immovable, fixed, hard unchangeable. A stone is a stone is a stone. You're not going to press a stone and make it anything other than a stone. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, a heart that, that is moldable, changeable, a heart that can actually be, be changed and can experience newness. This is the regeneration, the new heart that, that is offered to us through Jesus. This is a whole conversation about radical transformation. That's the context of John 3.16. And then he tells him, he says in John 3, 16, the the famous verse, he said, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Now, the problem is we've taken this verse as the Christian community and we've pulled it out of context and we made it a verse about an insurance policy. We've used it as a, you gotta say yes to Jesus so that when you die, You don't go to eternal damnation, but you go to heaven. You have eternal life. And here's the deal. That is not wrong. It's just incredibly limiting to what the passage is actually saying. Here's the best way I could say it. I have never seen the Grand Canyon, really. Now, I've flown over it at about 30,000 feet, and so I've seen it. Uh, It was really small, right? It was beautiful, but I can see pretty much the whole, I can see from side to side, right? I've been looking down. I can see the Grand Canyon. If you said, can you explain what the Grand Canyon is like? I can say, sort of. But I'm guessing it's a lot different when you're standing there. I'm guessing it's even more different when you're walking into the Grand Canyon. You know, I've never really experienced the grandeur, the awe. It was just cool. Fly over it, you look down, it's cool. And sometimes I think that's the way we are with John 3.16. Like we know it, we can see it, but we see it from 30,000 feet. And the opportunity for us today is is to drill down, to see it for for all of its meaning and for all of its grandeur and all of the beauty of of John 3.16. And here's the deal. John 3.16 is a present tense promise. It's a promise now. It is a promise of your eternal security, but it is also a promise for you right now, today. We don't have to wait until we die to experience eternal life. Jesus says these words in chapter 17 of the same gospel. He says, now this is eternal life, right? The passage is talking about eternal life. Now Jesus is saying, hey, just so you know, this is eternal life, that they know you 
the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God through the person of Jesus. When God gives us this rebirth, when we are are born of spirit, we begin to know God more and more and more. And as you know God, you are transformed by God. Knowing God is transformational. So when you know how gracious God is, you become a more gracious person. When you see how, how God is willing to move towards you, you're willing to move towards other people. When you see how sacrificial God was towards you, you're willing to be sacrificial. When you see how, how much God has done for you, it, it, it brings gratitude out of our our inner spirit. So God becomes our source of everything that we are becoming. That's why so many of the, of the epistles say that you would know God more, because as you know God more, you are transformed more. And all of this knowing of God is available to us because God wants what's best for us. Look again at John 3.16. It says what it says, for God so loved the world here the word, the word uh, world is cosmos, and in the ancient Greek world, cosmos just mean all, meant all people. God loved all people so much that he sent his only son to die for them. Here's where the image of God is so important. God is not looking to punish you. That's what Satan wants you to believe. He wants you to believe that God is just waiting for you to mess up so he can bring the hammer. But God is not coming to punish you. Look what it says in verse 17, right after the world famous verse 16. It says, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Just We learned this last week, but, but God's movement is always love. He, God's motivation is to tear down the curtains. God's motivation is to call you out of hiding and to live in relationship with you. Jesus didn't come with a hammer. He came with his arms stretched wide with an embrace. He came to save us. He came to call us out of hiding. I want to stop here, and I want to just clarify a misconception about the gospel. And it's really the gospel that I learned as a child. But I want you to know it's wrong. And here's the gospel you may have been taught. God is angry. And our sins are so bad that God is mad at us. And then Jesus comes and Jesus says, well, I know God is mad, but I'm going to stand in the gap and I'm going to appease God's anger so that you can be in relationship with God. The problem with that is it's wrong. It's not biblical. God was, I had this image of like, God's like trying to get to me to, to take me out. And Jesus is like, no, no, not now. Wait, no, hold him. He's holding me, holding God back so God doesn't come smite me. But the passage doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say that God was angry. And so Jesus came and said, God so loved you that he sent his son to show you how much he loved you. Right? There's a difference, and it's a big difference because if your image of God is the angry God who's waiting to smite you and Jesus is just standing there to hold him back, then you're not going to move towards God because you're afraid of God. But God is love. God is the one who sent his son to remove the curtain to give us access to him. The question that I've heard the most throughout this curtain study is why do we hide Why do we continue to put up curtains? When everything you're saying, Doug, makes sense, why do we continually do it? Why is it so instinctive for us to hide? Well, the passage answers that question. Look at it in verses 19 through 21. It says, this is the verdict. Lights come into the world, but people love darkness. 
instead of the light, and their, their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light. Why? Because they're afraid their fears or their deeds are going to be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. This is a hard truth. It's a hard truth for me to, to, to say. It's a hard truth for me to hold on to, but it's a truth. We all love darkness. We are all fallen in some way, and there's a part of us that, that gravitates towards darkness. And when that happens, we, we tend to want to hide and keep that darkness hidden up. And so Paul David Tripp, who's a great author, worth, worth reading, says these words. He said, I, I want to think that the biggest problem in life is the evil world that surrounds me, when in reality, my biggest problem in life is the evil heart that exists inside of me. If we're honest with ourselves, we realize that we have a tendency to gravitate towards darkness. We all sin. We all fall short. We all have seasons of rebellion and, and do things that we know we shouldn't do. And when that happens, our tendency is to feel shame and guilt and to hide from God and hide from one another. We put up curtains. What's, think about a curtain. Why, why do you have a curtain in your house? Why do you put a curtain in front of your window? Probably to block out the light, or to block out somebody from being able to see in, which is really the same thing, right? So we put up a curtain in our home to block things out, and, and God is saying, no, it's just fear. It's just fear that, that what you've done or what you think is going to be exposed to others. We fear that, that, that we've done too much, that, that too much has happened to us. Tim Keller, in your book this week, there's a quote by him. It says, to be known and not loved is one of our greatest fears. To be known and still rejected is our greatest fear. So we put on pretense. We, we project to be something that we know that we're not because that seems safer to us. I think most of us have said to ourselves at one time or another, if people really knew me, they wouldn't like me. It's just a, a message from the enemy that causes us to go into hiding. And it's all based in fear. But the scripture says what? It says, perfect love casts out all fear. Some of you are afraid you're just not good enough. Some of you just don't think you have what it takes. So you disengage and you, you stop giving any effort to it. Some of you are just afraid you're not smart enough. So you overcompensate with words or attempts to look brilliant. Right? Maybe you have a fear that it's just never really going to get any better, so you've just given up hope. You've stopped trying. Maybe the fear is that you've sinned too much, that you're just too messed up and that God has given up on you. There's no hope of forgiveness for you. Maybe you're afraid to expose your heart because you've been hurt so deeply. I think one of the things that I've thought about this week that just makes me so sad is sometimes we sin and then we hide. But so often as I journey with you, you have been sinned against and you've hid. Whether it was abuse as a child or, or a parent that didn't love you well, that hurt, that wounding has caused you to recoil and to go into hiding and God is searching for you and he's walking through the garden and he's calling you by name and calling you out of hiding and saying, I want to give you life. 
We're afraid to fail. We're afraid to succeed. We're afraid to desire. We're afraid of being hurt. We're afraid of disappointment. We're afraid of rejection. We're afraid of being fearful. And God storms in, and he enters that dark place, and he says, do not be afraid. I'm greater than any of your fears. My love is sufficient to cast out any fear that you're carrying. I think I just want you to hear that Jesus is in the room right now. And he's just calling you. He's calling you out of that place of hiding. And for some of you, it's the first time. And he just desires that you would say, Jesus, I I know that I need you and I'm willing to take a step of faith. Would you just be my Lord and Savior? And I just encourage you to pray that prayer right where you are. But many of us have walked with Jesus for a long time and something resonates today. We know that there's still places in our spirit where we are hiding things that we've experienced that we just don't want to bring into the light. What I want you to hear is he is inviting you, let it go, to bring down the curtain and invite the light. There is life in this. Today is the day. Abundant life is available to each and every person in the room. It's about recognizing that God loves you more than your wildest expectations. And that love can overcome anything that you've done or anything that you've not done. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you loved us so much, that you sent your son, that you are our Abba Father, that you have pursued us, that you call each person in this room by name, Lord, I pray that we would yield to your spirit, that we would be born of flesh, but we would also be born of spirit, that we would be able to see your kingdom when it's all around us, that we will be able to see you at work. Lord, I pray that you would give us life, abundant life, that we would be the people you've called us to be, that we would be a church without curtains, where we can be honest with one another and honest with you. Lord, I pray for the people in the room who are deciding today to walk faithfully with you. Pray that their decision would be firm, that they would take hold of you. Think of the song that we sang right before I came up here, let my heart want for nothing, just you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I just want to encourage you, if you made a decision today to walk with Jesus, we would love to just pray with you down here. Uh, if you are struggling in your journey, uh, we would love to, to meet with you and pray. We did pray for the people this morning uh, before the service and got a sense that someone is struggling with a right shoulder. Uh, we would love to just lay hands on you and pray for your shoulder as well. So come on down if you need physical, emotional, spiritual healing We'd love to be with you. As you go out, you're going to be given one of these bags uh, for My About Father's Business, if you don't mind bringing it back next week with some groceries. It fills our pantry. If you're one of the people that stood up, uh, you can just stop back there and give them the $20, and let's raise all that money for it. God bless you. Go blue.